Thank you so much for coming and joining us, Patricia. It's a pleasure to be with you again. It's good. Oh, whereabouts in Sydney are you from? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they have eels, I think. I think they've got eels in Parramatta. So that's what we know about them. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether we should own them, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you have just flown in from Jerusalem on, was it Monday? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you were doing in Jerusalem? That would be great. So Jerusalem was a conference called GAPCON. That's the Global Anglican Futures Conference. It's a long story, but basically it was a collection of 2,000 Anglicans from around the globe, led by a Nigerian choir who for one week discussed various issues about being Christian, really, in the world. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing conference. I, did, I assisted in three seminars, one on marriage love and intimacy, and one on same-sex attraction and singleness, and one on the transgender phenomenon, because we feel that these were largely the factors that caused GAFCON to start off, because the mother church, Lambeth, Church of England, we felt were not taking biblical stand on relationships, mainly sexuality, and that was the beginning of the split. So... That's what the conference about. It was amazing, mm. 200 Christians. And just before I came, I was talking to a girl, whom, woman with whom I very, very, became very close. She's a wife of a bishop in Kenya. And just listening to the experiences that they face in their community, they have like lost a whole generation of parents to HIV AIDS and they've got grandparents looking after the children. And she talks of the level of poverty where children don't go to school because they don't have a pencil. And that there are girls who don't go to school one week every month because they don't have any way to manage their menstrual cycle. And this is the level of poverty where those people are holding out as faithful Christians. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you really feel how privileged we are. And you, you, it really makes you think how grateful we need to be to the Lord mm. for our country mm. and for what we have. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I might just hand the floor over to you, uh, and you can get into it. So thank you, Patricia. Thank you. Okay, well, let's get started then. But for those of you who don't know me, because I was here a long time ago, it seems a long time ago. Um, Just to let you know a little bit about myself, you're probably thinking, sitting here, those of you who haven't met me, thinking, what is this old subcontinental woman got to tell us about sex? So let me tell you a little bit more about this subcontinental woman. I was born in Sri Lanka, in the tea plantations of Sri Lanka, a long, long time ago, in the time of the dinosaurs roaming the earth, (laughs) 71 years ago. And I went to medical school in Sri Lanka, and then I was teaching at the medical faculty in Sri Lanka, met and married my husband. We belonged to the two ethnic groups, Tamil and Sinhalese. We figured that if we get, by getting married, we'll be solving all the problems of Sri Lanka, but it didn't quite work that way. Anyway, I had, we had our son, and then I did my postgraduate study in Hawaii, 
that's where I really got into sex. It's a great place to get into sex. I would highly recommend it. I was studying under a sexologist, and at that time, and even now, I think he's one of the leading researchers in the area of gender. So then I went back to Sri Lanka, and for six years, I was the only sex therapist in the country. It's a very busy time with 20 million population. And 29 years ago, my husband and myself and my son, who was then 13 years old, migrated to Australia. We sort of did it to give our son a better life. He went through all sorts of things at university and then went back and studied theology at Moore College and is now a Presbyterian minister, definitely a better life. And then I have been teaching at an academic at the University of Sydney for almost 25 years. Six years ago, at the ripe old age of 65, I retired, meaning to do things that people in retirement do at 65. But God had completely different ideas, so now I spend my time speaking and writing around sexuality from a Bible, biblical per perspective. So that's the quickie version of my life, and I'm happy to answer any questions later on it. So what we are going to talk about today, as you've been told, is about 35, 40 minutes on living with sexual integrity. What does it mean to really understand this? And to me, as I said earlier, being in Jerusalem, being with people from so many countries, and let me tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, people who are actually our brothers and sisters who are actually persecuted for standing up for the Lord Jesus Christ. We had a closed session when all the media were asked to leave, when brothers and sisters from persecuted countries talked about how they had been in prison and actually tortured for their faith. And you begin to really appreciate that even at this time when we are looking at problems of religious freedom, we are still at a position when we can't stand up and talk like this, which in many countries you can't. Let us praise God that we can still hold on to this. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, let us hold on to it because it is truly precious. And so let's talk about where do we as Christians in Australia, where do we actually find our happiness and our satisfaction? Do we look to our career, to our power, to our wealth, to whatever? What is it? At whatever age we are, what do our children find happiness and satisfaction and identity? Where do we, if we actually sit down and think about it in our culture today, we find that increasingly sexual satisfaction, sexual identity is increasingly becoming the source of fulfillment and happiness in our culture. Now, this is what I'd like to examine. What does it mean? And can this ever work? Ever from the, even in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah's time, the Lord Jesus Christ, God said, my people have committed two sins. They have turned away from me, forsaken me, the spring of true living water. And they have dug their own cisterns. So they have turned towards the world. So nothing new. There is nothing new under the sun. Even from the Old Testament and right up to today, 
when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will not go hungry, whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. A temporary high. We will go and look for our happiness as a culture in the toilet bowls for water and in the trash bins for sustenance. Yes, it may give you a temporary high, having sex out of marriage, before marriage, in whatever you desire. Yes, orgasms are great. They give you a temporary high, but it will never truly last. True satisfaction cannot be found in this search for instant gratification. So that is what I'd like to examine. What does it mean to live as a Christian in our world today, in our super-sexualized culture? So I'd like to start all, begin by discussing some of the narratives we face. When we talk about sexuality, we talk about desire, falling in love, and what does it mean when you are sexually intimate? So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the narratives. We are surrounded by narratives about sex. Some, many, are very seductive. How we understand and integrate this will be what we call a worldview. So we will listen to narratives, what we believe, what we critique, what we put together will become the, the kind of mesh the worldview through which our values, our attitudes, and our behaviors will be, will be affected and will be determined. So, what narratives does science give? Basically, today we can do brain imaging, neurochemical mapping, genetic studies that give us a picture of this is how <coughs> things are in our brain, in our body. Now, if that is our dominant narrative, the kind of things we will say is, I am born this way, my hormones, my genes make me do it, I can't help myself. Now, in the time, like I said, when I first studying medicine, we thought science was that, a static thing. But now we know that even science is affected, the biology, what we call nature, is affected by the environment. And we don't have time to go into it in detail, but brain science tells us, in a science for you biologist doctors here, called neuroplasticity, the very word plasticity, it's malleable. Even your brain circuits are malleable, dependent on what you put into it. So what you put into your brain will change the circuits in your brain. This happens very much rapidly in developing brains. So children to like the 20s, because that's a time when brain development is happening very, very rapidly. But however, at whatever age, it does happen. So even the brain is not like fixed. The another newer area of science is called epigenetics. And this is a science that tells us that even the way your genetics are expressed as characteristics are dependent and influenced on the environment in your mother's womb and even the environment in your grandparents and great-grandparents' environment, how they grew up. 
And that is an amazing thing. It almost puts a whole new spin on the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. What you do and the environment you establish for yourself will affect the generations to come in how the genetics are expressed. So even biology is nature, but there is a nurture that involves, or the environment that affects the biology. Now what about our cultural narratives? My dear brothers and sisters, just look around you. We live in a culture of radical individualism and personal pleasure. Let's accept it. It's all about my independent desires, my happiness. The word we often read in reading about it is a world of self-ism. I matter. It is my right to do what I want my desires are what matters. I do what pleases me because after all, the here and now is all that matters. And nobody can or should try to change my personal version of integrity, sexual or otherwise. To do so, to tell me that I cannot do what I desire is bigoted, and basically evil for you to try to tell me. I live by my desires. And all truth is relative. Talk of relativism. There is no moral or spiritual truth. It changes with time. What is right for me is right for me. What is right for you is right for you. And for all you younger ones, you call it the you do you. The you do you generation. And for older ones, never mind, talk to the young ones over tea. It is like we are going to be seated for eternity singing, I did it my way. <laughs> for this is for the older ones. And <clears throat> in this narrative, sex is a commodity that we can share on a swipe on our iPhone or send a naked selfie. And women are com commodified in pornography. Sex is a commodity, and there, is it a surprise that at least one in four women is a victim of intimate partner violence? This is what our culture has made sex into. And at one point, it's a commodity. On the other side, sex is my very identity. So I find my meaning and my identity in having my sexual desires met. And if I don't have sex, I am somehow lesser human being. And I need a label, especially we talk of all the young ones today who are scrambling to find a label. And therefore, things like Instagram and Facebook very conveniently have about 74 labels which you can choose and mix and match to find an identity. It is everything, it's my identity, it is nothing, I can just share it as a commodity. Even in a Christianized version of culture, we see sometimes a sort of narcissistic Christianity, I won't call it Christianity, a sort of narcissistic deism that says God is this kind of Santa Claus who is there to give me what I desire. And so we even see a Christianized version of our cultural narrative. 
So my dear sisters and brothers, what then does God have to say about this? What does God have? Has God got anything to say about sex and sexual integrity? My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a Christian here, we need to be speaking to a confused world that God's word is actually a more beautiful cosmic narrative for life and for sex. God gives us a beautiful pattern. It's a revelation of beauty when it comes to our sexual life. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, pick up your Bibles and look at it. The Bible is book-ended with wonderful relationships. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam is created. And then God looks at Adam and everything is good in the garden. And Adam is not lonely. He's got all those lovely furry animals. And above all, he's got God hanging around talking to him. I mean, why would he be lonely? But God says, you know, it's not good for this man to be alone. Not lonely, alone. So I'm going to bring him somebody who's absolutely perfect for him. And so he takes a bit of Adam and he creates a woman and he brings to Adam. And Adam goes, remember those first words? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The most beautiful woman I've ever seen. He'd never seen another one, but, you know, <laughs> that was beautiful. That was desire, Garden of Eden. That was complimentary. And we'll come back to that when we come to marriage and integrity. But there we have the first marriage, a beautiful pattern that God gives. And then at the revelation, we have Jesus coming back to claim his bride, the church, you and me, perfect, white, dressed in white, pure, ready. A, a, what a wedding, what a consummation, what a honeymoon for eternity. That's just the bookends. And then in the middle, we have eight chapters of erotica in the sealed section of the Bible. For those of you who are married, you read it on your honeymoon. If you haven't, well, it's time. Because it talks of a husband and wife using every one of your senses to beautifully, erotically stimulate each other not just physically, but emotionally and in conversation and in poetry. When was the last time, gentlemen, you read a poem to your wife? A lovely romantic poem. Go find one. Ladies, find one and give it to your husband and get him to read it to you. It's, or just open Song of Songs and read something together. You see, God created man and woman and he said, this is very good. And in that naked and no shame relationship of Genesis, we find man and woman coming together. And you might say, isn't that just Old Testament? But we look at the New Testament and we listen to Jesus in Matthew 19 when he says, he was asked about divorce. And he says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them man and woman? So Jesus draws right back from Genesis and he talks of, a man leaving and cleaving. Marriage is God's pattern. Marriage is God's place. That's why the boundaries for desire and love and intimacy. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, 
We're stepping out of the boundaries means we are stepping into a world as Satan said to Eve, did God really say? Satan asked Eve, did God really say? And the same questions are asked of us today. Did God really say? The temptation of sexuality outside. Temptations in what? Let's look at desire. What is desire? The science just basically says it's testosterone-driven in your emotional brain. And it basically says, I want sex. Now, that varies. Now, even in a group as big as this, there will be some people who are saying, yes, I really want it. Now, I can't wait till I get home, you know, that kind of. It's high desire. There'll be others who sort of say, eh, if I trip over it, yeah, fine, it's all right. But I'm not sort of, you know, climbing the wall for it or hanging from the chandelier. So the wanting is like an appetite. It varies between people. It's driven by testosterone. Men have about 20 times as much testosterone as women. It kind of explains some things. But the basic thing is it's a wanting. That's all the science says. Now, the interesting thing is we look at the cultural narrative. A cultural narrative that says your desires are not a want, they are a need. You have a right to have your every desire met. So whether it is premarital sex, same sex, other extramarital sex, or anything else. I mean, we're talking about sex, but it could be anything. You desire something. It is your right. The terms we hear is follow your heart. Get what you want. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the word of God is clear. Our hearts are not naturally aligned with God's way. God's plan for our life. In Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, says God, says Jeremiah, through the voice of God. How can we understand our hearts when we live by what our heart desires? Our emotions drive us. We live as in Matthew 15, Jesus said, for out of the heart, or what I call the emotional brain, being an anatomist, I have big problems with emotions uh, uh, residing in my ventricles, but never mind. For out of the heart, the emotional brain, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony. Our hearts are broken. We do not live by our desires. As Christians, we live by God's guidance in the word of God. And my dear brothers and sisters, be careful about listening to the world's narratives, to live by your heart. You see, even in Song of Songs, when the woman has said, love is as strong as death, it's jealousy unyielding as the grave, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame, so powerful. Three times in Song of Songs we read, don't arouse it before the right time. <coughs> Sorry. It is dangerous to arouse desire before 
the right time, and the right time is within the boundaries of marriage. Excuse me, I'm suffering from a Jerusalem sore throat. Okay, not really. I think it was traveling for 25 hours. Okay, so don't arouse it. Don't stimulate this good desire which God has given you for the right time. Now, what is probably in today's culture the most deceptive and seductive desire is pornography. So give me a few minutes, and again, I'm giving you the kind of one and a half hour talk in 25 minutes. That is pornography. Porn is anything that is sexually explicit and created to titillate. Now, you might think that it's only on the iPhone or the laptop. Wrong. Today, it is everywhere. It's in comic books. And if you're thinking, huh, what's that? Comic books, anime, hentai comics. Year five, six kids will name them. It's in comic books, it's on movies, it's in television, you watch something like Game of Thrones, it's full of pornography. It basically surrounds us everywhere. We can't get away from it. We have to use wisdom and discernment in what we allow into our mind. Why? It is because, as I've already said, what you put into your brain will affect what your wiring of your brain. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there is nothing called a little pawn or good pawn and definitely no couple pawn. Couples say, is it okay if you watch it as a couple? You know what happens? You watch pornography as a couple. You, yes, you are aroused. You go to bed and you make love, not to your husband or your wife, but to your porn star. That is infidelity. That is cheating. If anyone here is struggling with pornography or even tempted with pornography, please ask for help. Talk to your ministers, talk to another Christian brother or sister. It will destroy your relationships, your life, and your marriage. The average age of porn exposure, first porn exposure in Australia is 11 years and dropping. We are seeing porn, children with porn, problems with porn use in primary school seven and eight-year-olds. So please, teach your children. I'm happy to talk about this Q&A time. Because remember that we have been taught, if we read in the Bible, Satan prowls. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion. That's why I had lions in the earlier slide. Prowls like a roaring lion. We, Jesus came and conquered Satan. But he is still a toothless lion prowling around trying to get us. So be aware. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Develop it. Well, I'm, I took pornography as just an example. But as we looked in the earlier slide, all sorts of lust surround us. Desire itself is from God. How we live out this desire is what can make it lust. 
So self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Work on it. I mean, look at you gentlemen, and you've got all these lovely six-packs. You didn't get it by just sitting in front of television. Yes, I see some of the ladies reaching out and stroking the six-packs. I hope it's your husband or boyfriend you're stroking. <laughs> and it's a good thing, but you didn't get it by just sitting in front of television with uh, a bag of popcorn. You got it by working out in the gym. And that's what you do for self-control. You know, it's a fruit of the Spirit, and Jesus says, work on it. The Apostle Paul says in, in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared in salvation. It teaches us to teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright lives, to say yes to self-control. We need to work on it. We need to teach our children how to self-control when it comes to desires. Else what will happen? They listen to the world's narrative and live by their desires. And that's a dangerous route to take. God wants us to enjoy to have good desires, but to know that desires have boundaries of good self-control, and that is what God intends for us. Well, what about this? Okay, before I finish with porn, is recovery possible? Yes, recovery is possible. Praise God, we worship a God who says, I can renew your mind. Do not conform to the word I can renew your mind. Now, we've only talked about desire. Let me spend a little time talking about falling in love and sexual intimacy. Now, those of you who are married, you remember the time when you first saw him or her, and you had that little heart palpitating, uh, heart palpitating. I'm trying to see how this wonderful technology actually takes me back. How lovely. I mean, you know, you had that heart palpitating, pupil dilating moment. Remember that? You wanted him in your arms, by your side, in your bed as soon as possible. The chemistry there is a spray of a chemical called dopamine. Don't you love a chemical that basically makes you dopey? Because that's what falling in love is. Other chemical changes, serotonin levels go down, same thing as obsessive compulsive behavior. You know, all that palpitation that was adrenaline, you know, fight or flight reaction. So you either stay and fight or fly, uh, use the flight and get away. No, not the fight, but you stay. And anyway, then there is a part of your brain that is associated with rational thinking is actually depressed when you fall in love. Ever thought about it and thought, what does she see in him? She ain't seeing. Love is blind. <laughs> You see, when the chemistry of love is like working under the influence, which is why when you fall in love, you really need to take advice from people. Because for you, your beloved is the most wonderful thing in the world for about 18 to 24 months, which is for as long as that craziness lasts. Fascinating, isn't it? God gives you a mechanism that makes you fall in love and think that this person is everything to you till you have time to get up here and married. Mm. Don't you just love that? Just chemistry. But and in our world today, we have a very schizophrenic view of marriage. At one point, we at one side, it says, why marry? Just live together, cohabit, 
try before you buy. I have teenagers who come up to me and say, but if we don't sleep together, how do we know whether we have a fit? And I say, penises and vaginas are not made in small, medium, large, extra large. <laughs> Definitely not. Trust me, I'm an anatomist and a sexologist. They fit. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, you're laughing, but people actually think it. That, you know, like you've got to see whether there is a fit. It isn't. It fits. Penises start off tiny, but when they... I'm sorry. <laughs> Not exactly what I meant. But when erect, they are all about the same size. And vaginas can cling on to the littlest, but enlarge to let a baby's head through. They're very elastic. So don't worry. You don't have to try a fit before getting married. And it is really a relief to many young people because they truly believe that you need to check it out to see whether you can have sex. So that's important. But the cohabitation, the living together, which is so prevalent today, the statistics clearly tell us that people who live together and then get married, we call it sliding into marriage, just as easily slide out of marriage. And that cohabitation, living together, and then getting married has far less, um, I would put it the other way, has much more dysfunction and marital breakup than people who have what we call decide to get married. So they call it sliders versus deciders. People who decide to get married and get married before they sort of do the living together. So at one point our culture says, why marry, just live together? And at the other point, there, at the other end, there is, oh, marriage is about love. So anyone who loves should get married, whatever gender or whoever you are, or maybe even whatever age you are. If you love, you need to get married. These are the culture we live in, where love is misunderstood. Of course, the Bible clearly tells us, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is other-focused. It is about the other person, not about my selfish self-gratification. It is that other-focused love that looks to the other and says, what can I do for you rather than what can you do for me that keeps a couple together after the 24 months? when the palpitation no longer is happening. Now, we are not doing the marriage talk, but if I was doing that, I would say it's after the five years when you get up and you look at your prince and wonder, uh-oh, you know. <laughs> That's when you'll need to keep kissing the frog <laughs> and turning your prince or princess back. When love is not an emotion but an action that brings back the loving emotions. That's really important for us to remember. Because not the world's narrative. The world narrative says, I stay with you as long as you please me. God's word says, I stay with you because I have made a covenant commitment. And I will love you notwithstanding your beauty or your wonder in what you do for me, but I will stay with you because of promises that I made for you. Because, my dear brother and sister in Christ, sexual intimacy is a binding act at a brain level. 
you are sexually intimate with someone, and I'm not just talking intercourse. Any form of intimacy binds you to the person. Different chemicals, oxytocin, vasopressin, cause you to bind. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there is nothing called casual sex. Sex is never casual. You always bind, like a little super glue bond with the person you have sexual intimacy with. You can't avoid it. And so when you're married, you have lots and lots and lots of intimacy, and you have lots and lots of super glue. So by the time you've been married a while, you are glued at a brain level and at a deep soul level. Ask my husband, he's tolerated being married to a sexologist for 45 years. Now that needed a lot of glue, let me tell you. <laughs> so, this naked and no shame we read in Genesis, this marriage, this bonding, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can feed our brains with the deviant fantasies of the world and the narrative of the world, having sex with anyone as we please. It, it's pleasurable for a moment. Like we said, orgasms are fun because they push up your oxytocin and your dopamine. But for goodness sake, it only lasts, what, with luck, maybe a couple of minutes, usually 30 seconds, and <clears throat> that's it. But what do we give up for that temporary high. We give up our very souls that are made for happiness for eternity. We are called not just to live a life of happiness. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we are too precious to our God for him to give us up to a temporary happiness. We are too precious to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are offered holiness for eternity. Yes, God wants us to be content, but our holiness is so much more important to him than our temporary happiness. So place your lives in God's hands. You see, in Psalm 16, we read, in your holy presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not settle for the happiness that we find in the toilet cisterns and the trash bins. Let us hold on to the promise of that eternal happiness, the joy and pleasure we get at the side of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so I want to just talk to you very briefly now about sexual integrity in a marriage situation. What does it mean to be integrous in marriage? Does it mean that, you know, we like this, you know, 101, 102 positions and, well, 101 positions and 102 excuses? Is that what marriage is? We've moved out, remember now, we've moved out of the emotion and we are at the kissing of the frog. So, very briefly, Marriage, God gives us a plan for marriage. We are created for relationships. And don't worry about this. You all know this in Genesis. We are made male and female. God clearly says created for relationships in the Trinity, for relationship, male and female. He created them. Our bodies are beautifully complementary. We are sexual beings. We've already looked at the beauty of Song of Songs. But let me read you Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. 
May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated in her love. My dear brothers and sisters, this is in the Bible. It means that even when you are not as supple as a doe or fast as a graceful deer, maybe due to arthritis and being 71 years old, and your parts of your anatomy, dare I say your breasts, have been gravity challenged and moved to Melbourne, still, <laughs> still, as a couple, you'll be satisfied always and intoxicated with each other. That's what we are created for, that within the boundary of marriage, have good sex. In, chapter, in Corinthians chapter 7, it talks about how your bodies belong to each other. And then it says, you know, and be intimate. Not necessarily sexual intercourse, but intimacy is important. Be intimate. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you. So take time out to pray and read the Bible, but jump into bed after that. I'm sure you're all going to go home and start praying every night. And that's good. That's great. You know? So it's really important. Intimacy is important. Why? Brain level, it bonds you. And at a deeper level, it causes you to serve God together. And just very briefly, there are other, let's come back, <clears throat> where the, our marriages, our marriages in Ephesians chapter 5, it clearly says it's like Christ and the church. And marriages have a purpose, yes, to make babies, for procreation. We've already talked about the recreation. God created genitals. God put a lot of sensory nerve endings into your genitals. I'm looking around, nobody under 14. Not under 14, are you? No? Okay. So, um, you know, ladies, God created your clitoris. The clitoris is the only organ in the body that basically hangs around doing nothing else than having fun. God could have taken it off the design, but he let it stay. Our God is a good God who created pleasure, who created desire, who created falling in love. And then he says, I have a pattern and a purpose for you to use this as is best for you. You live within those, you will be happy. You step out, you will be challenged with all the problems that Satan will place for you. My dear brothers and sisters, your marriages show the world the shape of the cross by the love as well as the sacrifice and compromise you make. Show the world what it means. Well, I can't not speak to singles, so let me speak a few words to the, those of you who are here who are singles. Our churches maybe not your church, but many of our churches don't do a very good job in supporting singles. Singleness, the Bible says, is a very important stage in life. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I wish all of you were single. Because you know what? 
when you're married, you've got problems. You've got to get up in the morning and uh, fix breakfast and get the kids off to school and pay the mortgage and do all these things. If you're single, you get up in the morning and you think, what can I do for God today? Not that simple, but that's what it is. Why is it then? What's the problem with singleness? Very briefly, you see the worldview, okay, technology, come on, yeah, good. We, have, we live in a world of confusion. A worldview says that this independence, by 2 Timothy, there are times when people will be lovers of themselves. We love ourselves. We are independents. We want to be single because I just want to have a good time and look after myself. Why should I get married? Who cares? I want to have to look after children and someone else. I want to just look after myself. And even in the church, sadly, we have this personal fulfillment that if you get married and you have sex, only then are you fulfilled. Well, let me talk to you singles and say that I've been a doctor for 50 years almost, sexologist for over 40 years, and I've seen people die of lack of medicine and food and health care and water. Not one empirically reported case of death by lack of sex. Not one anywhere in the world. We worship a single savior. The apostle Paul was single. Singleness is a rich and rewarding state of life. For every one of you singles here, be so content with who you are. Because that is what God's word says. We are a community. And that is your family. That is your support group. Enjoy it and help each other enjoy it. You may find that you are living in a state of tension. And that's okay. You can be satisfied. All of life is a blessing. But it is okay to be grieving because marriage is a good thing. And so it is okay to think, you know, I wish. And because world, our world sometimes doesn't give, as we've talked about, doesn't meet all our desires. The important thing is where are you seeking your satisfaction? If you're seeking your satisfaction in the world, you will end up, as we talked right at the beginning, looking in the toilet cisterns and the, you know, the bins for those momentary highs. But as a single Christian, when you turn your eyes and find satisfaction in Jesus and everything he has given you in the family of Christ, you become an amazing example and evangelistic image to the world. Because you show the sufficiency of the gospel. Your satisfaction in Jesus will shine brightly to a world who says, what is your problem? Just have sex and get what you want. So where does this leave us? Let's just pull things together. Where are we going from here? My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the things I have told you today is asking you to live countercultural to a world. A world that says find pleasure where you want, live by your desires, follow your heart. A world that says this is how you find happiness. And my dear brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are saying your satisfaction, your identity can only truly be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. And living by his word when it comes to sexuality and everything else in life will bring true eternal happiness. 
This will challenge the world. Your lives will challenge the world because, as Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. It's not enough to say I am a Christian. Yes, I am. But am I living by the words of Jesus? That is important. Are you ashamed of the words of Jesus? Then if you are ashamed, surely we stand before the Son of Man when he will be ashamed of us. Don't take that chance. You see, you are here because you have put your hand to the plow. Don't think I've spelled plow correctly, but you get the word, you get the meaning. Uh, you have put your hand to the plow. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, do not look back. This world of ours, culture in Australia, is going to get increasingly challenging for us. Don't look back. You have put your hand in Jesus's. Look forward. Pray God that every one of us have the strength to be his witness in a broken and confused world. You may be the only Christian whom somebody meets. Your life may be the only thing that will lead that person to the Lord Jesus Christ and to eternal salvation. Use that opportunity. And just very briefly to talk to you about the books that we have. <coughs> I just brought a few of my books. Teen Sex by the Book is a book that we wrote for 15 plus. It was banned in public schools before they realized that it never was used in the curriculum. It's a long story. But anyway, it was unbanned. But that was good because during the time that it was banned, I love being a banned author, you know. <laughs> you know during the time that it was banned, we had young people, public school kids going up to chaplains and Christian teachers and saying, can we have that banned sex book? So yeah, we got it into the hands of non-Christian. We wrote Growing Up by the Book for 10 to 14-year-olds. That's for parents to read and then give it to the kids, and then there's discussion questions. Best Sex for Life was, goes from engagement to the nursing home, which is where my hubby and I will be going. And uh, not directly today, but, you know. <laughs> and the last set of books we wrote about uh, less than a year ago, we released it last July. It's called Birds and Bees by the Book. This is a book for primary schoolers, for parents, grandparents, aunties, whoever, to read with littlies. So we just brought a few copies of these books, if you can buy them if you want. I also do creative writing in my spare time. And uh, my first book was called Empire's Children, which is set in Sri Lanka in the tea plantations. And the other one is uh, Snowy Summer, which is set in the snowy mountains of uh, in Jindabyne. So we brought a few copies of these books, if you'd like to see them. And my dear husband, manager, chauffeur, cheer squad leader is in charge of that, so he will. Okay, that's also my email, so if you want to contact me, and that's my website and everything else. Can we have that telephone number back so that people can know where they are? Thank you. And that's the number for you to email your questions. So can we break now and allow? Thank you. Why don't you guys thank Patricia? Thank you.